Well, good morning. I would wish you a happy Thanksgiving. And to some of you, I may say congratulations for surviving Thanksgiving. It's only funny, though, because it's true. Because the reality is some of us actually have such family dynamics that we might actually dread every minute of it. And it could actually be that we're so lonely due to the broken relationships that we have in our family and in our friendships that we actually don't have a whole lot to say thanks for. Eight years ago, we had a Thanksgiving that was very special. I had a young bride, uh, newly married was I. My, my mother, my sister were there with us, as well as my wife's family. This was a very special day to have all of my family there together, but it was also a very broken day. It was very broken because I was in the midst of the hardest year of my marriage. We had no money. We were fighting like cats and dogs. And on that same day, my wife's beloved coach from high school, soccer coach and teacher, we got the phone call that day at the dinner table that he had passed away from cancer. It was also the last Thanksgiving of its kind because the following spring, my mother passed away from cancer. This was a Thanksgiving that was special, and yet it was the last of its kind, and we, we, we spent much time thinking about all the times that we had prayed for my mother, for Johnny Williamson, this other individual who died, praying for our family to come together for healing. And yet it seemed at the time that God was not listening nor active, that in fact maybe we'd been abandoned. I wonder with you this morning, how many of you may feel just like that, that right now in your life, I wonder if God is even listening. I wonder if God even cares about what's happening in my life. He seems to be silent. How could you possibly trust God in situations like that? This morning we're going to look at a psalm that is actually a prayer, and it shows us how to pray when we feel God's silence, and it helps us learn to trust God even when He seems distant. So throughout this sermon, I'm going to invite you into a particular way of prayer that we see illuminated from this psalm. And as I invite you to read from Psalm 13 with me now, just let you know I'm going to be from the NIV in case you have a different translation. Hear the word of God. <clears throat> How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please pray with me now. Lord, oh, we thank you for this beautiful, heart-wrenching psalm, and we ask that you would give us your grace this morning. We ask that for those who are too comfortable, you would disrupt them. And for those who are, in fact, disrupted and suffering, Lord, you would bring them great comfort this morning through the gospel and your grace and your presence. In your name, Jesus, amen. 
This morning, we're going to follow along in the psalm, and we're going to see how this psalm helps us to question God, how to make our requests, and finally, how to trust in His goodness. So first, we're going to look at how it helps us to question God. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. These verses help us see so clearly, not necessarily what exactly to pray, but a way to pray. And it's laden with emotion. In the context, the King David here is he's praying this prayer. He's writing this prayer that's later used for worship. This is the situation is that David is suffering from some sort of injustice that we don't know exactly what it was from an enemy. David's life was filled with opportunities for this. It could have been so many different things. The specifics aren't really that important. But what's important is the man's heart being laid out on the paper here in front of us, the prayer that he offers to the Lord. And we see him doing two things here. We see him speaking to the brokenness, and we see him speaking to the impact to God. So let's see how he speaks to the brokenness. First, you got to understand that he, he doesn't pretend like everything is fine when it isn't. That's just not reality, and that's a really important concept for us to walk away from this morning in our lives and how we pray. He does this with five questions. He does this in an almost interrogation-style way of engaging God with the injustice of what he feels from his enemy and certainly from what appears to be the abandonment that he feels from God in his time of need. He says in verse 1, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? He seems to feel abandoned. Like God doesn't care. God's not listening. And then he speaks to the impact of that actual thing in verses 2. And I want you to catch that all of this is a form of prayer known as lament. This is crying out to God. He asks this question, how long? He asks it four times. He intensifies it every time, bringing about more and more emotion, more and more of the injustice and the abandonment that he feels. And we need to have emotion in our prayer to accurately convey the uh, kind of brokenness that we're experiencing. One guy says that emotion actually links our interior and our exterior worlds. And I think that's really important for us to remember this morning. Look at verse 2. It says, How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And day after day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? What are the impacts? Well, the first, he's wrestling with his thoughts. This sounds a lot like anxiety. Sounds like he can't think about a whole lot else. And then he says, how long will I have sorrow in my heart? It sounds a little bit like depression. It sounds like he's really struggling, that he's got so much sorrow that he can't hardly keep going. And then he says that his enemy is continuing to triumph over him. How long will this happen? He's speaking to the injustice. Friends, in our relationship with the Lord, we can be either lamenters or we can be liars. And when I say liars, I just mean the simple fact that we don't speak to the reality of the brokenness of this world around us. So we can either be lamenters and faithful in our lamenting to God, or we can be liars and suppressing the truth of how broken our experience in this world really is. Dan Allender says, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and reality is where we meet God. See, God wants us to engage with Him 
in the brokenness of our lives and the impact of these things on us. And he wants us to do it in prayer because it honors him and it draws us closer to him. Friends, I would say that if you don't pray with emotion like this, I would wager that you probably have a pretty boring prayer life. And it's probably because you don't have an honest prayer life. So, you know, as a counselor, a guy who sits with people in my office very frequently, I get to have the privilege of hearing from people stories of impact, stories of brokenness. And in one hand, this is extremely disheartening. Extremely disheartening because I have to hear the brokenness and the impact constantly as we process these things and seek for healing. But in another way, it's extremely encouraging. Because my friends are talking about the significance of what is broken and wrong in their lives, and oftentimes the question being asked either explicitly or implicitly is, does God really care? Is God there for me or not? This morning, I want you to know that I think often all of us have the misunderstanding at times that God's silence and His inactivity we interpret as indifference. Where in reality, God is always with us and always lovingly shaping us for those who are in Christ, possibly drawing us to Himself. In the midst of our trials and sufferings and injustices, and even at times God's silence, we should remember that God is drawing us closer to Himself, and it's just not usually in the way that we would prefer, is it? Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And when he says good, he doesn't mean our earthly temporary comforts, but he's referring to God's glory and he's referring to our growth. We may not understand his plan, but if we always understood, what actually would we need faith for? So, if we have spoken to the brokenness and we've spoken to the impact, it sets us up to be able to, such, uh, to, be able to speak with such clarity to the specifics of our lives and the ways that we specifically need God to intervene by requesting His help. And this is really interesting because in the first two verses, He moves from what seems to be an interrogation to pleading requests in verses 3 and 4. He moves from feeling, it seems, abandoned to feeling very emboldened, actually. Look at verse 3. It says, look on me and answer, Lord, my God. He's basically saying, hear me. Show up. Do something. I'm desperate. And why is he desperate? He says, verse 3, just after that, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. It's kind of a funny expression, but what he's really conveying is, I'm on the verge I can't keep doing this. If you don't show up and help me, I might just die. I got nothing left. I'm out of energy. The tank is empty. You have to give me help. You have to strengthen me and sustain me. And if not, look at what he says. Give light to my eyes or I'll sleep in death and my enemy will say I've overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Speaking again to the incredible injustice that he feels, and he's asking the Lord to vindicate him. He's asking for the specific situation to be alleviated and redeemed. Do you see it? 
It's really clear. And isn't it interesting that he goes from praying and crying out to God of this feeling of abandonment, but then he doesn't walk away. He doesn't walk away in the midst of feeling abandoned as if his prayers are pointless. He's actually emboldened. He actually comes with greater faith and makes these demands. It seems very vulnerable, a very desperate prayer that he would engage with God in this way. But what if God lovingly uses the brokenness of our lives, which, understand this, God did not create. God is not the author of sin. But what if he lovingly uses those things in our lives and at times his own silence to bring about our desperation in our lives so that we know from experience that he is the only hope that we have and we actually cling to him? What if he does that? What if in his sovereign plan, he counts that as a win for us in our hearts? Dan Allender says, God knows how to get our attention. He lets us experience what it would be like to live without him. He abandons us in order to shatter our illusions and then lead us to a deeper relationship with him. Think of the Apostle Paul for a minute. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians tells us that three different times he pleaded to the Lord that God would deliver him from a personal affliction that he calls the thorn in the flesh. Three times. And then we read these words from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's a great picture of what the Christian life should be for us. Because it's in the moments of our weakness when we're afflicted, that we actually need Christ, and it's in those moments that we have Him. We have His power. Friends, where do you feel like you're on the verge this morning? Where do you feel like you're so desperate and you need relief that you can't just keep going? I wonder about your your marriages. I wonder how your financial life is shaping up right now. I wonder about your careers. I wonder about hidden sin and addiction, physical ailments. What about the crushing weight of depression that causes you to not even want to get out of bed in the morning? Perhaps some of us have the kind of anxiety that makes it so hard for us to sleep at night that we roll and we toss and we labor and we have obsessive thoughts. These are real issues. You know, I think it's actually really hard for all of us especially in this Western American culture, to ask for help. Because we want to be competent, we want to be good enough, we want to come off as confident, we want to be in control, we want to perform, we want to be good enough. And I think a lot of us spend most of our lives pretending that these things are actually true. Pretending that these things are true, not facing the reality. But friends, we have to remember that we're not in control. We're not in control, especially with God. And all of the brokenness in our lives, it points us to our spiritual condition before God, that we have nothing to offer Him. 
We have no way of earning his love, no way of earning his favor, where our performance utterly fails and leaves us merely begging for his grace because any sin, all sin, completely severs our relationship with him outside of his grace. And this sets us up for the ultimate request for help. And when we actually see our need for help and mercy, the grace of the cross is available to us. And so to our psalm again, I find it very interesting that this is an increasingly hopeful prayer where he goes from lamenting and questioning and crying out to then pleading, asking for help, and then finally to praising. He, we find him in verses 5 and 6 affirming God's goodness and his trustworthiness. Look at verse 5 and 6 with me. It says, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. What are we to make of this guy? What are we to make of the kind of prayer where we actually transition so, so seamlessly, apparently, from the brokenness and the feeling of the impact and questioning God's goodness, essentially, and where is, where is he at to then praising God? What do we make of that? How does he do that? Is he crazy? One commentator suggests this is a condensed prayer. It's a prayer that took hours and days and weeks to pray and to have his heart shaped and molded and transitioned to this point of being able to praise God. And I think that that's something that does happen in prayer. And I think we should engage prayer just like that. Seeking the Lord's will, not our own. I do think that. However, I think there's a reality that we can hold, as I think David does here, intention, the, the, the reality of brokenness and suffering in our lives and being able to affirm God's goodness and trust in Him. I think He holds those things in tension. And that's hard. That's a sticky wicket. That's tough. I think that our Christian life should be a life of constant lament and continuous thanksgiving at the same time. Look at the verbs He uses here the action that he portrays. He trusts, he rejoices, and he sings. And he gives us a reason for each one of those. First, his trust. He says, I trust in your unfailing love. This is the Hebrew word hesed, which Hebrew, but it means unfailing love or long-suffering, or it's the picture of God's covenantal love to his people, his people, that he originates and that he sustains and that he makes persevere, that he takes care of it. He assumes the responsibility of continuing the relationship with us. That is his long-suffering love. And this is a picture of God's character. This is who he is. He does it. He carries all of the weight of our relationship upon himself. And it's, it's that character that leads the Lord to action and how he intervenes in our lives. In verses, uh, the second part of this verse, he says, My heart rejoices in your salvation. At this point, this concept of salvation really referred more to deliverance as opposed to Jesus on the cross because it was written long before Jesus on the cross. But what David is alluding to here is his previous experiences of seeing how God has been faithful and delivered his people, the Israelites, throughout the course of history. 
He continuously has seen through Scripture how God shows up and delivers His people and is making a way for them. Even in his own life, think about the story of David and Goliath. Here you have this young shepherd boy taking on a professional warrior, a giant of a man, and he slings a stone and he hits the guy in the head and then he cuts his head off and he kills him. This is a picture of God's incredible deliverance to him and that he's able to both look back at God's previous deliverance but also expect God's deliverance in the coming time. But friends, this also points us forward to the ultimate and greatest deliverance, the ultimate and greatest demonstration of God's character and His love, His long-suffering. This points us to the cross because it's in God's character of upholding relationship with us that we see Jesus coming to this world for us. We see Jesus coming and living this perfect life that actually merited God's righteousness and favor, and then He assumes our sin for us. He takes it upon Himself This is God's covenant love. This is God's uh, long-suffering love that He doesn't expect you to take care of that. He takes care of it for us. And that's where we see Jesus on the cross crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the reality is, in that moment, for a temporary time, God actually had abandoned Jesus. Jesus tasted real and ultimate abandonment from the Father so that we never have to if you cry out to Him and plead for His salvation. And then we see in verse 6, this beautiful summary. He says, I will sing the Lord's praise for He has been good to me. This is a summary of everything David has seen in his life of faith so far. And he says this, And he he sings this despite his current situation. Despite his current situation. And as I read that quote earlier to introduce our prologue, or yes, the song, uh, this is not about the faith of David. This is about the God who is worthy of that faith. So how do we Trust God when He seems distant. Well, I would suggest this, that God may seem distant, but He's anything but distant. Again, what if God uses the brokenness of this world and even His silence to bring us, to bring you to the foot of the cross where grace runs downhill? Friends, this world is not our home. John 16, like we read earlier, Jesus tells us that we will weep, we will lament, and we will have sorrow. But it will turn to joy. And all of this points us to the ultimate hope of heaven where sin and sadness and death will be no more and we will will actually have the face of Christ before us and live forever in His actual presence. Childbirth is an unbelievable experience. And this passage references childbirth, a woman in labor. Childbirth is both horrible and beautiful at the same time. And Jesus equates our current lives to labor pains in John 16, where we do experience weeping and lamenting and sorrow. But then he equates the joy of birth to the 
consummation, the presence ultimately that we have with Christ in heaven, and that the joy of our heavenly presence with Christ completely overshadows the labor pains. This world is not our home, and God has a plan. Perhaps our current situations, these current labor pains that we are experiencing, are giving birth to something great. Perhaps our current labor pains are giving birth to faith. Perhaps you're here today and you have nothing left. You're done trying. Perhaps today is an opportunity for you to finally cry out to God for His mercy. Certainly for your your life situations, but also for your spiritual condition that you have no hope outside of Christ. Perhaps our labor pains today are giving birth to a greater faith greater growth in His grace. But it's always giving birth to God's glory. Friends, God is listening. He is active and He does care. And this psalm would remind us, I would remind you that we should trust in His unfailing love. We should rejoice in the salvation offered by Christ and we should sing the Lord's praise together. Let's pray together. (laughs) Father, um, How sweet it is to know that despite the brokenness of this world, you have given us yourself. You have made promises to us that you will keep. Lord, I pray that you would help us in our time of need to find the cross, to find our own desperation so that we can find truly you in our time of need. I pray this morning that you would awaken faith in all of us, be it for the first time or greater faith for the rest of our lives. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, our presence. Amen. We're continuing now in our time of worship and the giving of our tithes and offerings.